I thank you for the cross, for what you did there, for what you suffered there, for the price that was paid for us. We thank you that you loved us enough to do that, to, to send your son, your only son, that we might know life. Father, I pray today as we focus on, on the crucifixion and read the passage from John dealing with the death of your son, that as we mourn on one hand and are saddened, that we would remember that we are also called to celebrate. We have great reason to celebrate. Because what you did there, you did do for us. We thank you for it. Just pray, Father, that you will speak through your word, that you'll give us guidance through it, that you'll speak through me. It's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See, from His head, His hands, His feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe. And all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Isaac Watts wrote that hymn in 1707. I would have sung it to you, but there's a reason that I preach and, not, and don't sing. I could read it a lot better. But he, he wrote that hymn in 1707. It was a communion hymn. It was the purpose of, of singing at communion. It was a controversial hymn because as it was written, which is really funny because we sing controversial songs today. You know, there's these worship wars that happen. These hymns that they were writing in these days were controversial. It was, it was, this was the first hymn that was written in English that used the word I. Or that focused on a personal religious experience. How we experience the cross. It was very controversial in, in, in that. But as he wrote it, it's obvious in Watt's perspective, it is obvious in these words that, that he's not thinking only of himself. But he's looking at the cross and he's mourning its necessity, celebrating its victory, And recognizing how great the price that was paid there. It, it, it's obvious that this wasn't simply about us. It's obvious in the work of the cross that there was something amazing happening. Our study of John for the past two years, we have been in John studying for two years and we finally made it to this place in John where we are face to face with this crucifixion, this horrendous, most evil of all events that has ever occurred in all of history. We are face to face with it. We are, we are upon the passage that describes Christ going to his death. And yet, I don't want to come here mourning and crying and, and, and forgetting that there was so much more than suffering happening in that moment. You see, I don't want to forget the suffering. I don't want to forget the pain and the price that was paid. But I don't want that to overshadow 
the gift that came through it. And the celebration that we can stand in today because He came and did the work. So as we pick up this passage in John 19, remember that. Because our Lord, you know, He had, he had done so many amazing things. He had taught so many amazing things. And He had lived a perfect life life but at odds with the the religious leaders in the area of that day they arrested him and they treated him as a common criminal they bound him and they brought him to the high priest and the high priest set up false charges against him they could not find anything wrong they could not justify their actions in any way so they created lies and their whole intention, their, their whole intention was not simply to discipline him or to, to, to correct him, but it was to kill him. And that was the very reason they brought him next to Pilate. They leave the, the Jewish Inquisition, the Jewish challenges that he was a heretic, and they bring him to Pilate, and they bring him to the civil trial. And the, and the, and the Jews, they act as if they're astonished that, that they might be challenged by Pilate. Well, why are you bringing him to me? Well, we wouldn't do this if he were, an, if he were not an evil man. We, we wouldn't bring someone to you to be punished if he hadn't deserved it. Well, see, he claimed to be a king. So Pilate talks with Jesus. He finds no guilt in him. And he comes out to the Jews and he says, Hey, behold the man. He is innocent. Oh, crucify him. Get rid of him. We don't want him anymore. You see, that was the whole point. They didn't care what Pilate thought. They didn't care about his concerns. They didn't think about what Pilate had to do with the situation. They wanted one thing from him. And that was to rid themselves of Jesus. To hang him on a cross and kill him. Pilate. Not knowing what to do. Struggles. The, the, the Gospels tell us that, 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 that he did not want to crucify Jesus. But bargaining with the Jews was difficult. And we come to our verse that we pick up the story in verse 16 and it says this. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Even the name of that, Golgotha, sounds terrible. I mean, we sing songs about Calvary, you know, because, well, at Calvary, that's where we find our victory. But Golgotha, I mean, that sounds condemning and, and that sounds terrible. The place of the skull. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Just notice. This was not something Pilate was trying to hide. This was, he wanted everyone to know. He wanted everyone who might pass by to be able to read why this man hung on the cross. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. See, the Jews, they still didn't want any real relation. They didn't want any real, uh, anything really to come back on them. Hey, we don't claim him. We don't want him. Just say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's, he's just some nut job. He's some wing nut that deserves to be hanging there. He's not ours. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom so they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be 
And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now I want to stop. I just want you to notice something. Jesus, beaten and bloody. I mean, the, he had just undergone a Roman scourging. We, we talked about that last week. We looked at it last week. We, we saw an example of it in a video last week. Just barely hanging on to life. I mean, just, just, he has just carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem on a beaten and bloody back, hanging on a cross that he's been nailed to by his hands and his feet, hanging there in agony and in pain and suffering, a physical suffering that you and I might not even be able to imagine. So bad that the word excruciating, the word excruciating came from this process. You see, that we, we talk about excruciating as pain that's just beyond imagination. He's experiencing it. He's, he's in the midst of it. And what does he do? He stops. And he sees his mother. And this disciple that's followed him. And, and take note, John's the only disciple we know of that was there. The disciple that he loved. All the other disciples have dispersed. They've run. They've hidden. They're, they're scared to death. John is there. These women are there. Don't let it be said that women aren't honored in the church. They stood at the foot of the cross. And they watched one of them, their son. The other's this, this leader who they knew to be Somehow special, their they're, they're, they're Messiah. I watched him die. And he looked at his mother in the midst of all of the agony and all that was going on. And he thinks of her. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. You see, Jesus knew that, that his mother, being a widow... By, by, by all, in all likelihood, she was a widow by this time. His brothers and sisters, they, they didn't believe in him at this time. They had no, they, they thought he was crazy. Someone needed to take care of her in that culture. She would have been, she would have lost everything. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. And in spite of all that he was experiencing, he cared for his people. He took care of them. And from that day, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, it was a Passover celebration, and so the Sabbath that they were coming into was a special Sabbath. It was different than the other Sabbaths of the year. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. See, they broke their legs because they couldn't, with their legs broken, they could no longer raise themselves up to get air and they would suffocate that much faster. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. The, the thieves on either side of Jesus, they break their legs and, and these two men begin to die. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there, there came out blood and water. 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Let me tell you something. Jesus was dead. He died. They saw it. They didn't break his legs because of it. And they shoved a spear into his side and burst his heart sack. And out came the blood and out came the water. He was dead. There's a great, a, a, a great controversy that, that rivals around this point. Let it be known. He was dead. And this disciple who witnessed it with his own eyes and knows it to be true testifies to it that we may also believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on Him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body. Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Notice, this, this was so moving. This was so important to these men who were part of the Jewish council, who were part of the leadership of the Jewish people, who had always secretly trusted and followed after and listened to Jesus. This was so moving that they came out of hiding to do this honor. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linens with cloth, with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus. God's one and only Son. Killed. Dead. And buried. And yet for, for people who have lived since that day, this has become a moment on which we look and celebrate. Isaac Watts, writing a very serious and solemn hymn, wrote that hymn in celebration. He, he wrote that hymn to be, to, to be sung at the celebration of communion. The remembrance of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But, but think about it. Because, because just because you and I see reason to, to celebrate, there are so many in the world that don't get it. There are so many in the world that look on this and think, man, it was a bloody and gory thing. Why do you remember it? See, the message of the cross is folly to the perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of life. You see, we, we look back and we remember and we know because of what we have been taught. That in that moment, our ransom was paid. You see, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing because what we still do today, so many people still do today, is that we make this moment really about us completely and us only and and even in the even in the release of the passion of the Jews all the Jews could do were they were so concerned that they would be hated they were like oh that's a terrible film people are going to hate us because of it and everybody wants to just consider themselves in this moment you see i think it's interesting that that Jesus was condemned by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Because it wasn't a Jewish hand that, that drove that spike. It wasn't a Jewish, Jewish soldier or guard that lifted that cross into the air and, and hung Jesus there. You see, what we have seen over and over and over as we've come through this, these passages that bring us to this place in John is that Jesus was innocent. And everyone else was guilty. We can't hate the Jews. We can't hate the Romans. Because our guilt hung Him there. 
You see, from all outward perspectives, from all outward perspectives, it would seem as if what Jesus was doing, it, it, it was as if he was losing ground, as if his, his work was falling apart, as if everything he had been doing for the past three years was coming undone. From all outward perspectives, it appeared as if the Jews were winning, as if Pilate was finding himself innocent. But Jesus didn't die that day. He wasn't crucified that day because Pilate feared men more than he feared God. Jesus was not crucified because of Pilate's fear of man. I mean, think about it. Pilate brings Jesus out to these people. He says, I find nothing wrong with him. And they say to him, Pilate, he has claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate, being a kind of a superstitious dude, the Romans were, they believed in many gods. He, he, he gets scared. He's like, oh, man. Now he, not, not only is he claiming to be a king, but now he's, he, he's a son of God? i got to get rid of this guy. And he goes back in to talk to Jesus. He says, who are you? Where are you from? He wants nothing to do with this. But his fear of man, his fear of man outweighed that fear that he had of any God. And he bargained with the Jews. But that fear of man is not what hung Jesus on that cross. You see, Jesus didn't die because of the hypocrisy of the Jews. He didn't die because of their legalistic views and their desires to justify themselves. He didn't die because they wanted him to die. Jesus was not crucified at the Jewish will. I mean, think about it. Yeah, I, I just imagine this. Here the Jews are. Here the Jews are. They're, they're coming to Pilate on Passover. Hey, this, it, it, it's time. We've got to get rid of him. During the Passover celebration, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to do it quick. We just need it over with. Just do what we're asking, or you know what? We'll, we'll just send some reports up to, to your commanders, and, and you know what? You'll, you'll, you'll soon be looking for another job. Just do what we want. But here they are, standing at the cross, and they're worried about, hey, let's make sure we get those bodies off the cross early. Because tomorrow's a special day. You see, it wasn't their hypocrisy and the twisting of the Scriptures that they looked at Jesus and condemned Him. It was not the Jews that held Jesus on the cross. Jesus was not crucified because of the fear of man. He was not... <clears throat> was not crucified because of the hatred of the Jews. Jesus was not crucified because he claimed to be king. As Pilate nailed, had that inscription nailed above him, this is what would go in the history books of the Roman, of the Roman people. This was the, this was the condemnation. This is the reason he's there. And he wanted everyone to know, I'm not crucifying an innocent man. I might have said he was innocent three or four times. But I'm not crucifying an innocent man. He claimed to be a king. You see, he's an insurrectionist against the Roman Empire. Jesus was not crucified because he claimed to be a king. By all outward appearances, it would appear as if Pilate made his case, as if the Jews had won, as if Pilate was making himself innocent, and if, if, as if Pilate was getting his way and, and was simply skirting the problem with the Jews. But see, Jesus wasn't crucified at all because of everything that seemed to be happening that day. Jesus was crucified because that's what He was sent to do. Jesus, in His journey to the cross, was what He had always intended to do. It was never a second thought. It wasn't as if, it wasn't as if God was playing chess with the devil and, and, and the devil out, uh, bested him at some turn and took his queen. And so God says, Oh man, I've got to come up with some plan and I've got to come up with some strategy that's going to work. See, Jesus was always the plan. His death on the cross was not a surprise. And there's, there's divine clues to this in John's passage as John teaches us and talks to us about what he saw that day and what he experienced standing there at the cross. We can see that Jesus didn't die because of all the outward appearances and all the outward trappings. He died because that's what he wanted to do. That's what he intended to do. 
And depending on who you read from, there is some disagreement over this, depending on, on who you study. But there are somewhere over 300, some people say over 600, messianic prophecies. Prophecies that are revealed in the Old Testament. Some of them written thousands of years before Jesus ever lived. Prophecies that Jesus came and fulfilled in his life and in his work. Things that pointed to his coming, how he would be born. Things that pointed to how he would die. And these things pointed to the man Jesus and they were fulfilled in him. Look back in, in John, John chapter uh, 19 verse 23 and 24. Look and see what it says. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see, for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. He is fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy written by David, actually in the, in the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 22, verse 18. Now, now probably, you know, David's writing this psalm and he's, he's, he's writing a song that would be sung in the Jewish worship. He's, he's probably not thinking, hey, I'm going to write about my Messiah that's going to come one day. But being inspired by the Holy Spirit, being inspired by God as he wrote, that's what happens. And so John tells us, look at this. This is what was prophesied to happen. This is what was supposed to happen. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The scripture, it's so amazing when you begin to look at this, when you begin to see it. It, prophecy, the, the, the fulfilled prophecies may very well be the clearest clue that we have that, that what we read is divinely inspired, that it was written by man inspired by God. Because these things written sometimes thousands of years before being fulfilled as they have always said they would be may be the very clearest clue we have that these are divine writings, writings that should be paid attention to, that should be heard and should be, should be read, and should be taught. They should be a, an important part of our lives because it's God's Word to us. Not only is the prophecy special, and not only does it point to this divine, this divine authorship, but think about it in its entirety. A book, 66 books put together, written over thousands of years by over 40 authors. And it tells one story. We can go into the Psalms, Psalm 22 in fact, and see over and over allusions to, to all that Jesus would experience and all that he would, he would deal with. I mean, we have to be careful. We don't want to apply something to Christ that, that may not necessarily be applied to Him. But listen, in Psalm 22 alone, how closely some of these things resemble him. Psalm 22.1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of seven things that Jesus Christ said from the cross. In verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. That's what put Jesus where he was at, or at least by all outward appearances. He was despised. He was rejected. He was an innocent man that was condemned. Verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. Imagine as he's hanging on the cross, the only innocent man on the field, surrounded by criminals and evildoers. David's writing about this maybe a thousand years before. Then look back in John verse 28. <clears throat> After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now, first thing I want to point out there is, is Jesus, here he is hanging here. He's just taking care of his mother. He's just, he's just set up his mother and, 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 and really formed this, this, this new family. Put it together. Your, your, your son, son, your mother. 
And knowing that everything was done, knowing that everything was taken care of, he starts making decisions, not, not because he's dying outside of his own will, but because he knows what is happening. He is deciding everything that occurs, fully knowing his work is done. And he says one last thing to fulfill the scripture. I thirst. That comes from or that comes from Psalm sixty nine twenty one. They gave me poison for food, and for my for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Back in Psalm twenty two, something else. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Imagine what it was to hang there, grasping for breath. One last thing to say. One last thing that must be done. Knowing all the other work is complete, I thirst. And they give him this sour wine to drink. He drinks it. And he hangs his head. And he says it is finished. And he dies. Verse 36 and 37, it's amazing because... His death didn't end the work. God is still at work. God's still doing His thing. Verse 36 and 37 show us that even after He was dead, even after He was dead, that prophecy was being fulfilled. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on Him whom they have pierced. In verse 36, it's an allusion back to Exodus. Back to the book of Exodus when, when uh, the, the Jews were, the Israelites were first given the celebration of Passover. They were supposed to take a spotless lamb and they were supposed to prepare that lamb in a certain way and they were supposed to eat that lamb in a certain way. And it says in Exodus chapter 12 verse 46, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you, you shall not break any of its bones. And if you're just not sure that that really refers to Jesus, if, if you're just thinking, well, maybe that doesn't really refer to Jesus just because they said they're not supposed to break the lamb's bones, maybe Jesus wasn't really the, the representation or, or at least maybe he wasn't being represented there by that lamb. Let me read to you how John the Baptist introduced Jesus once he recognized who he was. The next day he saw Jesus coming. John the Baptist is standing out doing what he did, calling people to repentance and baptizing them <coughs> And, 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 uh, and calling them to live a right life, a holy life. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus was that Lamb. And then in verse 37, obviously it refers to, not, not obviously maybe, but, but it refers back to a passage from Zechariah. The point I want you to get, the point I want you to understand, and the most important thing I think is as we try to understand and describe to people why we celebrate it is that Jesus wasn't there on the cross hanging and dying because people put him there. Jesus was there because he chose to be there. Jesus died because that's what he was sent to do. You see, this is the work that God has been doing. He has been doing this work from the very beginning. All along, as I said, this is not plan B. This is not some way for, for God to make up for some mistake. But as Adam and Eve in the garden eat of the tree they were commanded not to eat from, they're condemned, they're, they're sinners. They, they have chosen another way other than God's and in essence have set themselves up as their own gods. And they, and they stand there hiding from God, afraid. And God comes to them and says, what did you do? Tell me what you did. And they start making excuses and blaming everybody but themselves. And pretty quickly, God condemns them. And in verse chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, He says this, speaking to the serpent who was there, I'll put enmity between you and woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the proto-evangelium. This is the very first gospel. It's that very first moment. When, when all things went wrong, it's that very first moment that God said, I am going to make it right. 
I am going to do a work that, 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 that sets it all back on course and makes it what it was meant to be. You know, it doesn't give us a lot of, of detail. It doesn't give us a lot of insight into the work that he was going to do. But that's not where the story ends, you see, because after working with Adam and Eve, God works through a man, Noah, and his family. And then he comes to this man named Abram. And Abram, later his name was changed to Abraham. His wife's name was Sarah, and her name was changed to Sarah. He, he chooses them to work through them. And he says to them, he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a son. Well, that promise just wasn't fulfilled fast enough for Abraham. So Abraham takes matters into his own hand, sleeps with his wife's servant, has a son, and thinks, oh, I got my son. I've got my heir. That says, no. He's not the child of promise. He's not the one that, that, that I sent, to, that, that I told you I was going to give you. Your wife, she's going to have a baby. Well, they, she can't believe that. I mean, they're old. That'd be like my great grandma. Well, she's dead. So is my grandmother. My, ah, I've got a grandmother still alive. She's like 90 some years old. Got Alzheimer's. It'd be like her having a baby. She couldn't tend to it. She couldn't take care of it. Oh, yeah, they lived longer, but their bodies were still old. And they knew it. That's what they said. I'm old. You're going to have a baby. So they have this baby. They named that baby Isaac. And God says, this is the child that I promised you. And everything seems great at that point. Everything seems pretty good. You know, there's some struggles along the way. There's some problems that they deal with, especially with, with the other, with the, the handmaiden's son. They, they have to try and get rid of him and they have to get him out of the way. You know, there's some things that happen. Everything else seems to be kind of going to plan. Until we come to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. Where God tests Abraham. We're going to read this because even in this early day, thousands of years before his coming, in this man Isaac and in this test of Abraham, you can see an allusion to Jesus. See, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son. Listen to the way he says this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I'm not Abraham, and I don't know what his real experience was in that moment. My only son, whom I love, I'm supposed to take him and sacrifice him. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the, his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, I want you to notice something. This is pretty special. This is a man of faith. You see, Isaac, or Abraham, knowing that he's supposed to go to this mountain, kill his son, offer him as a burnt sacrifice, says, you know what, we're going to go over there and we're going to come back. Some people say, well, he just didn't want these other people getting concerned and wondering what was going on. I believe Abraham knew. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. Now, I just want you to picture this. Isaac, taking up this bundle of wood on his shoulders and carrying it to the place that he was going to be killed. Looks an awful lot like Jesus. Picking up a cross and having to carry it through the streets to the mountain on which he was supposed to die. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said... Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself 
the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, there laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son. What's going through Isaac's mind at this moment? Bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. What's going through Abraham's mind at this time? This is not something he's cherishing. It's not something he's, he's especially enjoying. He's hurting. I can only imagine that tears are running down his face. He's thinking, I'm about to stab my son. I'm about to kill him and his blood is going to flow and then I'm going to set him on fire. It's a terrible, terrible thing. I want you to imagine what it was like for a father with perfect love, for a perfect son. They had perfect unity and communion between one another to look down on his son as he was beaten and bloodied by a human race that should have been wiped out, that should have been condemned and sent to hell. As he hurt, knowing what was coming, as they strapped that cross to his back, as he experienced the pain and the price that it took to buy our forgiveness, as he saw his son hanging on the cross. And then at some moment, in essence, turning us back, darkening the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he'd been looking for this for some time. Been planning on this all along. And then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. We know that Abraham had another son. We know that there was someone else that would have carried on the line. This was the promised child. Your son, your only son. Now that I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. <clears throat> and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, the angel of the Lord's God, just in case you didn't get it, by myself. No help from anyone else. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see, Paul later refers to that verse about the offspring, about the seed. He's referring to Jesus. Even then, thousands of years before he ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus knew he was condemned to die. And he came and he put on flesh. You see, the, the amazing thing is, is that after working through Abraham, he comes to this people, the, the Israelite people, and he makes covenant with them. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. You obey me and I'll bless you. You, you, you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. But one thing they were going to be used for for certain was that through them, the Messiah would come. To them, a king would come that would always reign on the throne of David. You see, this is the work. If you step back from, from just this passage of Scripture that looks like Jesus is beaten, you begin to see the whole meta-narrative or the whole overarching theme of what God is doing. It all hinges on the cross. 
Jesus didn't die that day because people hated him or because people were afraid of other people. Jesus died that day because that was the plan. Jesus died that day because he knew he was to die that day. He died that day because he chose to die that day. You see, that's what he did. It had always been the plan. When he came to the Israelites, the Israelites hoped for a king that would, would loose them from the, the Roman rule. He, they hoped for a king that would reign. And what they found was a king that was going to serve and a Messiah that would suffer. Here it was, nearly 4,000 years after Adam and Eve stood in that garden and took that free fruit from the tree, making themselves their own God, where Jesus hung on a tree of another sort so that everything that in that moment that went wrong in Him could be set right. See, in one man, sin and death entered. In another, we find the hope of life. We find forgiveness for sin. We find redemption find reconciliation and that man's name is Jesus so Isaac Watts back in 1707 sits down to write this song he writes these words admiring the cross celebrating the cross even though no one else would understand even though many would not understand most would not understand Isaac Watts sits down and considers the cross and admires it. Not only seeing the brutality of the death, but celebrating what came through it and recognizing that there was no way that he could ever repay it. Because in that moment, he knew and was stirred with emotion that, that, that we should also be stirred with in some similar way. That on Christ was placed condemnation while we received grace and mercy. Jesus Christ died that day because He's offering forgiveness. And all that ever came from that, all that was ever asked of us was to believe. John says, I'm telling you this, I'm testifying to it so that you can believe so that you can trust. You see, the reformers, they talked about belief. It was, it was just not just having the knowledge and not just deciding that, the, that it was true, but it was trusting in it, relying on it, depending on it for life. So that you and I can believe. Today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper Remembering what He did on that cross. Remembering the price that He paid for you and for me. And I, I want to I remind you, I mean, it, it is a solemn and serious thing. But it is a celebration. It, it may not be the day that you need to skip down the aisle and jump for joy. But it should not be that we mourn. You see, because the reason we celebrate, the reason we even practice this today is because we're not remembering a dead guy. He's not just some famous dude that died once. See, on the third day, he rose again. And today he's alive. He's ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of his father who has now given him all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he's ruling. And he said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And so today, is, it's not just about a time to, to be sad and mournful. But it's a time to remember the price that was paid for you was paid voluntarily by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's something we should consider even if you're not a member here, if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we would invite you to come. We do this, this just a little differently than maybe other churches you've been to. Brent's going to sing. 
And I'm just going to ask you to pray and consider what Jesus Christ has done. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to confess your sins to him. I'm going to ask you to consider your life, to, to examine yourself. Confess. Repent. And when you're ready, as he sings, just come and take. Take, take of the elements. And before you do, let me just share this passage. As Jesus, as Jesus sat with his disciples the night of that, uh, that, that he established this meal, he says this, Luke twenty two seventeen through 20. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given, it, given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All that he did, he chose to do, he did for us. And that great price that was paid gives us great reason to celebrate and worship him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that, that, that you have been working throughout all of history to redeem us. And that, that as we sit here as believers today, we recognize that it's your work, that it's your power, that it's, that it's, it, it's your doing that we can even claim you. We recognize that we owe you our all. We're the whole realm of nature ours. That would be a price too small. Love so amazing and so divine. Father, we know it demands our life, our all. I pray that you would just spend time with us here. Remind us in this moment of what you've done. Not to crush us, but to rebuild us. To put us together as that spiritual house that you are building. Lift us up. Pull us out of that miry place. Sanctify us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Help us in our unbelief. Whatever you need to do, Father, do it now. Send your Spirit on us in a heavy way that we might recognize your presence as we remember your offering and your sacrifice. And so all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.